Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the latest elections news, including last weekend's by-election result, how we name federal electorates in Australia, and some of the upcoming federal by-elections which will be held at the end of July. I'm joined by two guests today for our um, second episode. My first guest is May Azizi. Hi, May. Hi, Ben. Welcome. And my second guest is Kevin Bonham. Hello, Kevin. Hello. So we are recording remotely tonight, which you might be able to hear. So uh, bear with us as we as we learn this uh, technology. So we're able to use a lot more people who are not in the same place. We're going to start tonight by talking about the news. And we're going to start with May discussing the polls. May. Uh, so new polls from Essential Research and Ipsos both suggest that Labor is maintaining its lead, but both polls registered small drops in Labor's support. Last week's Essential poll had Labor drop back to 52% of the two-party preferred vote after spiking up to 54% in the previous poll. An Ipsos poll taken last week had Labor drop to 53% of the two-party preferred vote, down from 54% in their last poll six weeks ago. The final boundaries have been announced for federal redistributions in Victoria and South Australia. No changes were made to the draft boundaries in South Australia, while a series of small changes have been made to the boundaries in Victoria, including two name changes. We're still waiting for final boundaries from the ACT, which we're expecting in the next few days. And then at the middle of July, all of those redistributions are going to be locked down, and that's going to be the final boundaries for the next federal election. These, these changes have seen Labor gain a number of seats in Victoria, while a Labor seat was abolished in South Australia and a new Labor seat was created in the ACT. Okay, and the uh, Liberal Party has won the state seat of Darling Range at Perth with a by-election on Saturday. By-election was triggered by the resignation of ex-Labor MP Barry Urban after he was exposed to fabricating major parts of his background. The Liberal Party's Alyssa Hayden is currently sitting on 53.3% the two-party preferred vote which is a swing of 9.1% since the election last year. Now, the pre-election polling proved unreliable, with a reach tell the previous weekend giving Labor 54% of the two-party preferred vote. The private Labor poll on election day predicted a very close result, but also said that they would win, which they did Before we move on to our next topic, it's interesting what we saw in Darling Range. So um, what, what do people think it might mean for Labor in WA that they've had this result and they've lost this seat so soon after winning power? Probably the... Not a not a huge amount because um, this was one of these sort of uh, freak victories on a on a huge swing that uh, wasn't all that expected. Um, obviously, it's not sort of like crazy sort of honeymoon level uh, winning everything in sight kind of uh, kind of result. So there's a bit of uh, dissatisfaction. It's it's hard, often hard to read much into by-elections. It's not a seat that Labor expected to win in 2017, I don't think. We discussed this last week, but Barry Urban was a bit of a shock win in that he got a 19% swing towards him. So in that sense, we're just we're just re- returning to a bit of a normal state now. Yes, it's coming off an, um, an inflated sort of baseline and um, it has strange issues associated with it with Labor having um, had to dump one sitting MP then had to uh, dump the, the, their initial replacement candidate who was involved in a sort of a smaller scale version of a similar controversy over uh, her CV. And so it's hard to really use it as a measure of how Labor is going in, in government. Uh, I'd sort of rather see a statewide poll to measure that. 
Yeah, and I guess the other thing that's interesting, the local polling in this seat has done so badly. Like, um, May, I don't know what you think about, um, like, how much we can trust these these polls. That we, we get a lot of these polls now, and this this has been a pretty bad result for them in that, you know, they were predicting a pretty comfortable win for Labor. And, um, frankly, it's not a new thing. Like, it's, frankly it's not anything different to what we saw in the federal election where a lot of these seats went badly. Yeah, I've noticed that retail polls in particular, <laughs> um, you know, kind of come out a couple of weeks before an election and tend to be, um, I definitely really take them with a grain of salt these days. Um, I was working on the New South Wales election when there were, I think, several really inaccurate retail polls that came out in the weeks before, um, the, weeks before the election. And I think um, we saw a couple of really inaccurate inaccurate ones come out um, in the weeks before the ACT election um, as well. So definitely I've been taking those with a grain of salt. I don't know if it's a methodological um, issue that they've got there, but I suppose the scale um, <laughs> the scale of this result compared to what the polling was saying in advance is a little bit sort of starker than what yeah, we're Yeah, I mean, not, not all the federal polls were as bad as this, but some of them were, like some of them were out by these kind of figures it's a problem that they have i mean i've heard some theories about why this could be one of which is as simple as like generally the budgets for these polls Mm. are too small and they're done too quickly and that kind of thing but it's it's definitely something that um is being grappled with and i think might be a topic for a later conversation um but this was an example of where they're they're struggling a bit one thing i mean i think the timing of polls is is i I think there's probably a methodology question that i'm just not familiar enough with their methodology that to kind of go into um but um one question we started asking ourselves in the act in 2016 was um we saw some really different i mean results have always been have always varied depending on whether pre-poll people pre-poll versus whether they vote on the day um, but we saw some really really stark differences um, in the ACT in 2016 um, that kind of led us to wonder what you know what that was whether it was entirely a question of um, demography because we we did see some really stark differences um, or whether it was actually just differences in how people make up their minds closer to the day um, and you know, changes in the campaign and issues closer to the election, um, because a, a like poll, a big difference between pre-poll yeah, yeah. And... Um, so, you know, I think a poll can never account for that unless it's taken, you know, really, really close to the election. You know, days before the election. Although this was done on the previous weekend. I mean, so. yeah. I mean, there's a whole bigger question as well about how we deal with pre-poll because so many people vote now with pre-poll, and um, that's been a big issue uh kevin i don't know if you have any thoughts on in a federal election we have a lot of big big runner polls whereas in in a local race you may only have one or two polls and uh they can't they don't really have anything to judge themselves against yeah, they can't really um bounce off each other too much which in, in some ways that's probably a good thing because you don't have pollsters all um replicating each other's findings which is a bit of a problem too this uh, yeah, seat polls, there's been some very good work out recently by uh, Simon Jackman and uh, Luke Mansillo where they looked at the, the, the seat polls for the last election and found that uh, on average their errors were so bad that uh, they they behaved as if their sample size was six times smaller than it was. So you get a seat poll of 750 people, you treat it as if it's only um, 125. Or, um, but that's still not 
useless, but it's like instead of sort of taking them as verbatim, all you can really do is sort of, you see one that's starkly different to what you expect and you just nudge your expectations a little bit and that's really all the use we can make of them. Even at the federal election, some seats had um, multiple seat polls by different companies that were all wildly wrong. Um, Bass uh, was one of them. I think Carter was another one. Yeah, so polls still, they still have value. And I mean, we, we're not discussing Mayo tonight, but the, the Mayo by-election polls now have uh, Rebecca Sharkey on 62%. And that that is that would be a very big win if she won with those kind of figures. So like without without ruling her opponent out, that is a suggestion that um, something, something big might happen in that election. Uh, and obviously there may be other value for those polls in terms of telling us why people vote and what they care about and all those kind of things. But when, when a race is close, which is when you want to know the result, um, they can struggle to get to that uh, that result. And um, Mayo is probably the one where seat polling will be the most useful because we've never seen anything like this contest, so we have no idea what to expect. So we'll be facing five federal by-elections on July 28th. We've never had five by-elections on the same day. The closest we came was in early 1994 when five by-elections were held between January and March. And that brought Mark Latham, Carmen Lawrence, Tony Abbott and Bronwyn Bishop to the House of Representatives. Um, Today, we're going to discuss three of those five by-elections and we're going to come back in two weeks and discuss the other two. Firstly, I wanted to talk about the two that are happening in Western Australia because they, uh, they're the lower profile seats and they're going to get a lot less of the attention. But there's some interesting things happening in those two seats and that's uh, the seat of Fremantle um, and Perth. So Fremantle is held by 7.5% and the local member there, Josh Wilson, uh, was forced to resign because of Section 44 of the Constitution and... Perth is more marginal with a margin of 3.3%. And the local member in Perth, Tim Hammond, um, resigned, not due to Section 44, and he held the seat by 3.3%. So, Kevin, what's what's the most interesting things you say about these two by-elections? Oh, a lot of the fuss about them will be the, the fact that the Liberals have decided not to, uh, not to even detest Perth, even though Perth is, um, is on a small margin, and unlike the rest of the by-elections going on at the moment, Perth doesn't have an, an incumbent. Uh, it's also had a, a, um, a bit of a revolving door of uh, Labor MPs. So there, there were some arguments for, uh, for contesting it, but they, uh, they decided not to. They decided to focus on, uh, on Darling Range, which they won. And um, so these ones, sort of like, it's sort of really challenging for anyone to, uh, to, to beat Labor, they are seats where the, the green vote is uh, very high. I think it was um, about eighteen percent in both of the last elections. So uh, the Greens will be uh, giving them a serious go, but um, it's, it's going to be uh, difficult. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that the Liberals decided not to run in Perth, and they partly justified that because of the the seat of Darling Range and the the fact that they wanted to focus their attention there. But Perth is is a seat which is long been held by the Labor Party, but the last three times that voters have gone to vote, they haven't had an incumbent MP. So we had Stephen Smith uh, quit in 2013, and then Alana McTiernan, who was a former state MP and mayor, quit in 2016 after only one term. And now Tim Hammond hasn't even lasted two years. So, I mean, you could imagine in different circumstances that being a seat in play, and maybe it reflects the fact that the Liberals aren't polling very well in Western Australia and expect that they're likely to go backwards and would embarrass themselves in those by-elections. 
it is interesting how much of an impact the Greens might be able to have on either of these seats because they are the kind of inner city seats that the Greens have done really well in on the on the east coast. Uh, Fremantle is a strong area when Scott Ludlam ran in, in the Senate by-election in 2014. There used to be a state MP for the Greens in Fremantle. didn't go well, but they won that seat once upon a time. So uh, I don't know how much of an ambition they have for that seat, but it will be interesting to see how well they can do. It will be a tough decision for them to decide which of the two to put their, um, their, their biggest uh, effort into it, I think. Um, it's, it's interesting to see how they go because, the, I mean, the Greens, are, I think the Greens are having uh, sort of issues at the moment of various kinds in Tasmania, Victoria, uh, uh, New South Wales, South Australia, probably probably Western Australia is one of the, the, the places where, where their brand is uh, currently most intact. So uh, mm. see what happens. One of the things I think people don't understand, particularly about Fremantle, is like the state seat of Fremantle, they do really well in, but the federal seat is a much larger area. It's about the size of four state electorates. And so while it includes that kind of inner city area close close to the centre of Fremantle, it also includes this large suburban expanse to the south. And that area is um, is not a particularly good area for the Greens, which makes it all the more impressive that they do so well in Fremantle itself. Like they poll over 30% in quite a few booths, um, but they will need to get beyond that. And the other challenge, I think, for them is that the Liberal Party aren't contesting, but those Liberal voters are not necessarily the ideal person to switch to the Greens. Some of them may, but we may also see a Conservative candidate do quite well. Probably won't uh, Probably won't come in the top two, but in the same way that when the Liberals didn't run in Batman a few months ago, we saw quite a few Conservative voters choose to vote for a minor party that they would normally not consider. So that, that Liberal vote won't necessarily go to the Greens. Um, it may go to an independent, and uh, the Greens would probably need most of those votes to to win, which is unlikely. Yes, it's a problem in a lot of federal seats that they that, that in terms of uh, uh, Green winning chances, that, that those seats are simply uh, too big and too diverse, um, and that they have, they have areas that are just that are just not very supportive, and whereas Soto's, this is making it hard to win seats outside of uh, um, inner Melbourne and probably eventually inner Sydney. You look at Sydney or you look at Melbourne, and there are, what, about 30 federal electorates in Sydney and maybe 20, 25 in Melbourne uh, in the greater urban area. In Perth, there's, there's 10, or, 10 or 11, depending on how you count, what would count as Perth, maybe maybe a couple more. And that means that that kind of inner city progressive area where they do very well just makes up, doesn't doesn't fill an entire federal electorate. It doesn't, doesn't help that it's split between Perth and Fremantle either. Like if those two areas somehow were in the same seat, but they don't, they're not um, right next to each other in the way that Balmain and, and Marrickville are, are relatively close to each other and can be combined in a single electorate. So, I mean, not that the Greens have been able to win in Grainler, but um, I think that is part of a problem that they will keep having in places like Western Australia, South Australia, that may mean that even though the Greens do better in WA, they might have better chances in places like Brisbane. Yeah, there's a lot of seats where I think that they're, they're sort of uh, around the country where I think they're sort of hanging on for, um, you know, sort of waiting for Labor uh, incumbents to, to retire and then there'll be a a serious shot at those seats while while they were popular 
long-standing Labor incumbents, it's not possible to win them. So let's move on now from the by-elections in Perth and Fremantle to talk about Braddon. Kevin, do you want to introduce the seat? Braddon is uh, the northwest and the west coast of Tasmania. Um, it's a regional rural electorate, a couple of uh, couple of uh, cities of about twenty thousand, number of uh, smaller towns, and a lot of a uh, lot of wilderness and uh, farms and so on. Um, it's a uh, seat with uh, low ethnic diversity. It's a seat with uh, low average education levels, very low in fact by national standards. And it's been pretty uh, flip floppy over the last uh, several elections, though not quite as much so as, as its uh, colleague Bass, but it's um, had a number of terms of ownership, I think about five in the last seven elections or so. So one of the things I find really interesting about Braddon is we have the former MP who's come back. So we have both candidates running for the seat as lead candidates are former MPs of, um, for the area. Kevin, do you think that's a big factor in terms of the Liberals' chances of coming back? I think that's why they uh, they pre-selected Brett Whiteley, so that they didn't have to uh, to build up a, a new candidate from from scratch, because uh, building up profile takes some uh, some work. And uh, Braddon's got a little bit of the same factor as Lyons of having lots of lots of uh, small communities where they uh, they don't vote for you unless they've known you for two or three years, kind of thing. Um, so. But in terms of um, personal votes, um, Brett Whiteley's personal ratings in polling when he was an MP were um, pretty mediocre, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything all that big there in terms of the, the, the appeal of either candidates or voters. Is there any particular parts of the seat that you think are the areas that are most likely to swing, like the areas we should be watching? I haven't looked to see if there's a history of uh, certain parts of the electorate being uh, swingier than others, other than uh, at the times when uh, when forestry was a, a big issue. Um, timber towns in Tasmania, the places where forest industry was important, were uh, incredibly swingy. You get you get sort of twenty, thirty percent two degree swings from election to election sometimes. Uh, depending on the policies of the parties, but uh, apart from that, I haven't, I haven't really looked closely at where there might be action this time around. Labor, Labor did very badly in this seat at the, at the last state election, and indeed even worse at the previous state election. But that the 2014 result, where they won four of the five seats up for election in Braddon, didn't stop Labor from uh, coming back and winning the seat in 2016. So, do you think that? large result in 2018 tells us anything about about what might happen at the end of July? This to me is really the big the big question about or one of the big questions about where this seat is, is going, whether there is a, a, a sort of a spillover factor from the from the state election into the federal election and uh, I've sort of been looking at the, the history of this sort of thing in Tasmania and um, there, there, there seems to be something there. There seems there, there seems to be a bit of a pattern that um, that you have runs of good and bad results for, uh, for one party at, at 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 both levels. But it's it's not clear whether it causes anything. It's not clear whether it's something you can rely on. Um, it's a very messy business trying to uh, analyse that. So we saw a reach to poll. I mean, we've already discussed 
the the problems with local polls, but we saw a Reachtel poll at the beginning in June that gave the Liberal Party fifty four percent after preferences. Uh, do you have is there much of a sense that uh, that might reflect what we what we would expect to see in that seat? It, it very much depends on uh, how you talk to because there's a there's, there's a lot of people who sort of say that they that the, the internal polling is similar without. Without giving details, apart from one very small sample uh, liberal internal poll that was, was sort of really insanely high for them, um, you get some sort of talk by uh, Graham Richardson was saying the Labour insiders think that, that the uh, the seat is just about hopeless, and the question for all of this is why? Um, if the if the state election is not enough to do it by itself, then what else is it? Why are they so uh, negative about it, given the, the history of, uh, of governments not winning these sorts of by-elections? So our next topic that we're discussing is um, the names of electorates. And this came up because in the last week, we've seen uh, two changes in the names for the next election. So we're going to see eight new electorate names in the next election, 2019, whenever that whenever the next election comes. Uh, we will see four seats change their name in Victoria. We're going to see two new seats in the ACT and, and Victoria. And in addition to that, there will be a renamed seat in Hobart and two seats in Northern Adelaide have been merged. The The draft Victorian proposal originally included renaming the seat of Karangamite as Cox and uh, it rejected, there was a big campaign to rename the inner north seat of Batman. Um, but in the final version, they have reversed both these decisions. So they've restored the name Karangamite. Um, and they've also renamed the seat of Batman after William Cooper, who was an Indigenous activist prominent in the 1930s. So I did some analysis recently about how there is um, a large majority of electorates are named after white men, generally historical figures in Australia's development. There's a small number of Aboriginal men and a, and a small growing number of women who have seats named after them. Um, and there was a big effort to name more seats after Indigenous people in the recent redistribution, um, with Cooper and Nichols being named after Indigenous figures. Um, but there hasn't really been much progress with naming seats after women. We're, we're quite an unusual country in that most other countries don't honour people with seat names. It's not really a thing that's done in places like Canada or the UK or the US. How important is it that our electoral map reflects modern Australia? Yeah, I think it is really important. And I think um, the, you mentioned in your introduction um, the Canberra seat um, of Bean and there's been a lot of local pushback um, against that. I know that uh, one of the one of the objectors during the submission process was um, Mike Kelly, who holds um, one of the neighbouring um, seats and is a Labor MP. And I think um, a big part of the backlash has been that Charles Bean perceived to be um, anti-Semitic and racist, but also because um, I know in the ACT and increasingly in a lot of state and territory jurisdictions, um, there's been a trend to really recognise um, Indigenous local history. In the five ACT seats, um, actually all of our electorate names are, are names that recognise Indigenous local history. I think it's it's really strong, uh, it's, it's really important to a lot of people because of that kind of sense of um, place and identity and recognition being so important. Um, there's been a bit of a push um, 
to see kind of um, to see women and, and kind of more diversity recognised in place names. But I've I have noticed that um, the Indigenous push has been a lot stronger over the last few years, and that's obviously um, totally appropriate and important and understandable. Um, I was one of the the debates that I did follow in recent years and. Um, was um, the push uh, to rename one of the WA seats after Joe Valentine. Um, and I was actually really optimistic about that and thought that that might get up, but was sad and disappointed when it didn't. <laughs> um, so this would have been, yeah, just because, uh, it would have been a few years ago. When it was the, before the, the 2016 election, I believe. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah when the yeah. federal seat of Burt got named, yeah. Yes, uh, uh, yes. Well, I think that's interesting because, like, there has been an effort. There has been an effort to name a lot more seats after Indigenous figures, but the um, the approach is still very conservative. Like, they are still naming just as many, if not more, seats after men, and the 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 people they name seats after still can, in some cases, are still quite conservative. Like the the Burt family in WA are a family of judges, and it's interesting about. Um, they generally try to stay away from politicians except for prime ministers. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought the reason it was interesting is because um, she, she is so different to the types of people that seats are normally named after, um, you know, and I think it, it would be good. It's, it's actually not just about more women. It's actually just about seeing different kinds of political contributions being recognised in these seat names. Um, so, you know, someone who... Um, was an anti-nuclear campaigner and activist and someone who changed the conversation in Australia about the environment. It's, it would be terrific to see someone like that recognised in, in how we name, um, in how we name electorates. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the bit about it that's interesting. It's, it's actually for me, not so much about the fact that she's a woman. It's about the fact that her contribution to politics was, was different and different to the types of um, contributions that we normally kind of see, um, yeah, uh, recognised and honoured in this way. The AUC has a policy that they don't name seats after people who are still living, and in that sense, mm. that forces this big delay in terms of who we honour in the country because, you know, tends to be that it's many decades past before people have seats named after them. So someone like people in that kind of position are mostly still alive now. And so maybe that is something we'll see down the track in future decades. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the we've seen instead, like we've seen Catherine Spence honoured with a seat in Adelaide um, and she's a very interesting figure. But you look at the time frame and when she was active and it's literally over 100 years ago. It's yeah. like the women's <laughs> suffrage movement and elect, all that kind of stuff. There are a few of these kind of uh, reforming figures, but it's still a very conservative list of people who've been honoured. Um, and in that sense, I mean, uh, William Cooper, who's the latest namesake, um, is also someone who had that kind of activist background, but 50 years earlier than Joe Valentine, you know, he was, he was campaigning around the National Day of Mourning in 1938 for Aboriginal rights and, uh, you know, was campaigning against the Nazi, Nazi Germany's treatment of the Jews. So we're talking, there's a very long lag before people are honoured with, with electorate names, which, you know, maybe maybe that has a certain amount of sense to it. You kind of give give it time before we um we give honors to people for kind of history to settle down and to make its judgment. But it it does mean that there's a lot of parts of Australian society that aren't really featured. I don't think there's any electorates named after someone who is not white and not Aboriginal. Um 
Like they're all either white Australians and frankly, I'm not sure even mainland European, like most of them would be Anglo, Anglo Celtic Australian background, or frankly, some of them weren't even Australians. They were like visitors and explorers and um, governors, but it's, um, there is this very long lag. Um, one seat name that I've been thinking of that I think is an interesting one, probably for New South Wales, is Faith Bandler, who was a, um, a leader in the 1967 referendum movement. And is actually, she's, she's not Aboriginal. She's actually uh, what they called at the time South Sea Islander. Um, so, again, there's, there's a lot of prospects, but it is interesting that there's a big bias already and largely the Electoral Commission has, has chosen a few people to represent a more diverse kind of honouring but has also chosen plenty of more conservative choices and you could include in that um, Monash and Bean who have this very interesting history of conflict between the two of them that it's funny that they've both had seats named after them at the same time. Hi, this is Ben jumping in here after the recording just to explain that uh, we had a few technical issues and we lost one of May's questions and I just want to explain what that was before we keep going. May was making the point about the fact that the seat of Bean uh, in the ACT, that name wasn't one that had been proposed by any of the the people making submissions in the process and she was asking about like, is that normal and what where do these names come from? And I'll, and I'll go back now to my answer to that question. Well, I believe there was a story in um, one of the papers recently about how the name Cox was chosen. And I, I don't know if it was a freedom of information request, but they got emails from the committee where they were suggesting names and there were dozens of names and most of them were not suggested by the public. And so, like... There's, there's an element of them taking consider- into consideration what the public has to say, particularly the seat of Batman. But largely they choose their own. They, they, they come up with names themselves and they look through the historical record and look for people who tick certain boxes and they're like, we want someone who's a woman and we want someone who has this kind of background or whatever. Um, and so in that regard, it's largely done independently of the consultative process and I mean, I think probably what you find is if there's a big backlash, then they change their mind. So if the backlash is big enough in the ACT, we could see a change in the seat name in the second draft. I don't know if the backlash will be big enough. One other case where we saw something like this where a backlash was very big was it was quite a few elections ago, but the AEC uh, proposed naming the new seat in Queensland after Judith Wright, the poet, uh, Wright with a W, and that was actually proposed by the Queensland Greens at the time, and they adopted that in the draft. But the problem was that the seat that they had chosen to name it after was a seat that had formerly be re- been represented by a Labor MP who had become Labor leader at one point, I think in the 1980s, um, named Keith Wright, who had ended up in prison on pedophilia charges. And so they were, they were proposing naming a seat in the same area that this guy had represented. And there was a big backlash. And basically what they did is they filed that name away and then three years later they, they named that seat Flynn. And then three years later they reused the seat of Wright in a completely different part of Queensland. Um, so it does happen. And, you know, we saw it in Batman. We saw it in Karangamite. Um, we could see it in Bean in the next few days. Uh, but it's, it's pretty unusual. And I guess the, the only other thing... I'm really interested in is like it feels to me like mostly Australia hasn't taken up much the cause of 
what we've seen in the US where statues have been taken down representing kind of historical figures who were considered to have done things that were, you know, frankly genocidal or in, in the US people who are linked to slavery. But in in Australia, we haven't seen very much of that. You know, we've seen a little bit with Captain Cook, um, but we haven't seen as much of it uh, in that in that regard, but we have seen this big campaign to name rename seats. So we've seen Batman renamed and Macmillan renamed, and there was also a campaign to rename Jellybrand. So it'll be very interesting to see if the AEC's more liberal attitude to renaming seats extends elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's um, interesting that they have started to uh, embrace this idea of uh, basically uh, dehonouring people who electorates were named after if their uh, their past form book was uh, bad enough by uh, by modern standards. They're sort of uh, still scratching around for uh, ways to uh, to make this a, a standard and sort of finding justifications in the, in the rules for, uh, for doing it. But it, I think that is a, uh, an, an encouraging trend uh, by itself. In some of the backlash um, to, to movements like this and, and kind of... Um trends like this people will always say oh well you know we shouldn't paper over history um you know we shouldn't pretend that these things didn't happen it's still appropriate um to have you know um to recognize these people in our history and so on but um i think that kind of really only stands up if you recognize and acknowledge all parts of your history (laughs) and i think you know we've had this big conversation tonight about um how seats are named and kind of the mix we've seen um and i think i actually do think there's a place for just you know acknowledging that that something's happened and you know having a statue or having a seat name or whatever isn't necessarily condoning the past but i think that that really only stands up if you're recognizing all parts of your your past and your history um and i think the the balance you know we, we don't have that balance um not just in seat names we don't have that balance in other parts of you know australian culture and political life for that argument to really you know stand so, yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens with the next round of electorate names and seeing whether whether we see more of a change in who we honour. I, I saw someone comment on my on the Tally Room website recently making the point that, sure, we, we have this historical legacy that we have to deal with, but we can recognise history without necessarily honouring it and there's a, we don't necessarily have to always keep the same electorate names over time. Yeah. And um, in that sense, it's interesting to see that we're seeing this evolution in who who um, has those names. So I'm going to leave it there. And that's it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Um, thanks to both Kevin and May for joining me. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, I've really appreciated the feedback on last week's episode. And we'll be continuing to work on this over the next few months. I'll be back two weeks from now with, a new, with another episode. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening.